One of the most important events that takes place when a local church gathers is the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And if what takes place during a church's communion service matches the New Testament, then the gathered church is vividly reminded of the gospel. The breaking of the bread symbolizes the breaking of Jesus' body on the cross. The wine symbolizes Jesus' blood, blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. Indeed, in Christ's death, the long-prophesied new covenant is inaugurated. And Jesus' death for sinners is so important, it's so fundamental for Christians, that our Lord commands his church to continue to observe this meal until the day he returns in glory. Brothers and sisters, our salvation depends. It depends on Jesus' life being torn away from him in a bloody, vicarious sacrifice. And so we're to remind ourselves, as often as we do this, that this that, that his body was scourged, that he was nailed to a cross. He poured out his blood that we should live, that we should have eternal life. Friends, what great evil, what great sin must reside within each of us if such a death of such a person is required for our salvation? Of course, we've studied this ordinance many times at New City. I'd wager we've read aloud and heard more teaching on this portion of God's word, 1 Corinthians 11, than any other in our 13 years as a church. (laughs) Uh, But I've yet to preach the text straight through in its context. It's always been a verse here, a verse there, often during a four-minute Lord's Supper sermonette. That's usually been the context. So today, it's the full Monty. If you look at your bulletin, you can see the outline of the passage, which I've lifted from the discussion on communion by Don Carson, given back in the 90s. And I've incorporated chunks of that discussion into my sermon as well. There are seven points. The Lord's Supper, number one, symbolizes our unity, our oneness in the body of Christ. Number two, the Lord's Supper reminds us of Jesus' death. Number three, the Lord's Supper is the seal of the new covenant. Number four, the Lord's Supper ought to function evangelistically. It's a proclamation of Christ's death. Number five, the Lord's Supper is a temporary rite of anticipation until he comes. Number six, the Lord's Supper provides an opportunity for self-examination. And number seven, The Lord's Supper reminds us of covenantal judgment. Now, before we dive into the deep end, it's important to understand the flow of the argument, the historical context of what's happening in verses 17 to 22. That sets up everything that follows. And incidentally, this is why it's very helpful, I think, to preach through whole books of the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, as opposed to to just parachuting into into text randomly based on whatever topic uh, the pastor wants to preach on that week. Uh, What have we already seen in our sermon series? We've seen that from chapter 7, verse 1 on, the Apostle Paul often resorts to a yes, but type of argument. So, for instance, 
the Corinthians, they say in chapter 7, verse 1, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And Paul responds, yes, celibacy has its good points, but one person has this gift, one person has another gift. Besides, sexual relations within marriage is a God-prescribed antidote to fight sexual temptation. And he adopts, I think, this very pastorally wise approach multiple times throughout the letter. Yes, but. So it's startling when we come to chapter 11, verse 17, that there's no yes. It's all but. Verse 17. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. Only condemnation. And the particular area in which Paul has only condemnation is, of all things, the Lord's Supper. How the Corinthian church observes this ordinance is absolutely atrocious. When the church gathers, members should edify one another. A church member should be better off as a result of having met with the larger body. But the way the Corinthians celebrate the Lord's Supper leaves church members worse off. They would have done better to stay at home. What we need to understand is that that in Corinth, the Lord's Supper occurred in the context of a larger meal, a dinner party, a sort of potluck, really, called a love feast. We read of these love feasts in Jude 1, verse 12, and 2 Peter 2, 13. It was an early church fellowship meal connected with the Lord's Supper, but distinct from it. And around the second century, it died out, it seems, historically. But it was, so it was connected to the Lord's Supper, but distinct from it. Communion was held as a meal in the first century, as a meal within a meal. Just as the Last Supper in the upper room was a meal with bread and wine within the larger meal of Passover. So it would be like if we celebrated the Lord's table at the end of one of our potluck Sundays, once the meal was done. Uh, Do you remember potluck Sunday? (laughs) Back in the good old days before COVID, I can't wait for that to start up again. So in verses 17 to 22, Paul bluntly explains the problem. When the Corinthian church meets to celebrate the Lord's Supper, the haves are not sharing their food with the have-nots during the love feast portion of their time together. How has it come to this? What's happening here? Well, it's very important to remember that the Roman world ran on a 10-day week, while the Jewish world ran on a 7-day week, which meant Christians who met on the first day of the week on the Jewish cycle, the Lord's Day, the day after Sabbath when Jesus rose from death, they were competing with the off days of the Roman cycle. Sundays and the 10th day would only line up a few times in the out of the year, which is one of the reasons why the early church tended to meet very, very early in the morning and very late at night with young men like Eutychus falling asleep during the preaching and plummeting to their deaths from a third-story window a la Acts 20. There were no 10.30 a.m. corporate worship services in the first century, New City. Uh, Just consider that for a moment. 
and, uh, and check your privilege. <laughs> so if they were meeting late at night, you can guess what happened. Those who were independently wealthy, they could show up any old time they felt like it, two, three in the afternoon, and they could bring along their prawn cocktails, some caviar, a a nice aged brie, a vintage bottle of wine, and and they would enjoy some fellowship together. Fellowship. A bit later, you'd get the independent business people who could knock off a little early, and then the freedmen, so ex-slaves, workers, and citizens who were not slaves or bound in any way. Maybe they could get there for 7 o'clock, and they brought along some chili and some chicken sandwiches, perhaps. Uh, But what about the slaves? An estimated one-third of the Corinthian population. When would they get there? Well, it depends on what kind of slave they were, but they could probably only get there very late at night after the master's family retired for the evening. And when the lowest of the slaves showed up, They couldn't bring anything. They didn't have that food to bring and to share. And by this time, of course, when the slaves arrived, uh, the love feast has been going on for some time. But remember, this was the fellowship meal, the love feast, the fellowship meal before they actually got to the part which Jesus himself had commanded, right? A small rite, R-I-T-E, with bread and wine. So, You can just imagine what's happening, maybe 11 o'clock at night. Hey, the slaves are here at last. (laughs) Push those dirty dishes out of the side, out of the way. Let's let's get the elements of the Lord's Supper out now. We can have the Lord's Supper. They're drunk. You see, instead of being a unified body, the church is divided. Paul writes this. I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you. And to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you has God's approval. And I think Paul is being ironical here. These divisions in the church weed out, they expose those who are false, those who are fakes. Divisions in the church caused by sinful behavior reveal who the authentic believers really are. Behaviors they thought merely marked them out as being social elite and therefore enjoying all this favor from God because of their riches. In fact, Mark them as standing under divine judgment is the opposite of what they thought and how they were behaving. He says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. No, the rich people who arrived early, they're devouring their own private meals. Verse 21, for when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry, that is the poor slave who got there last, and another gets drunk. So some church potluck that is. It's disgusting. That the have-nots eat virtually nothing, whereas the haves feast so much that they become drunk. The social elites in the church separate themselves from the poorer Christians. Where is the unity in this? What sort of love feast is this supposed to be? See, he's, he's not condemning love feasts in itself. He's like, see, how you're doing this love feast is terrible. Paul's aghast. Verse 22. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I do? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. And this comes up again in verse 33. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather together, when you gather to eat, you should all eat 
together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment because how you're doing this love feast now, it is resulting in judgment. In fact, some of you are dying. Some of you are sick because of it, he says. In other words, get rid of this table fellowship if all it's going to do is generate more animosity, resentments, bitterness, feelings of superiority, inferiority, inclusion, and exclusion. You're celebrating the Lord's Supper meal within an exclusionary feast is anti-gospel. The Lord's Supper is supposed to be the center point of Christian unity, but it's become the focal point for division in this church. What did we learn in the last chapter? We're a fellowship, brothers and sisters, of the Lord's table. We're a fellowship of the Lord's blood. We're a fellowship of the Lord's body. The Lord's Supper, it circumscribes us, it defines us, it constitutes us as a one fellowship people of God. The church celebrates the Lord's Supper together as a unified whole. Low-status people, And the social elite, young and old, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. There should be no factions, no divisions, because the Lord's Supper symbolizes our unity, our oneness in the body of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does next is he explains what the Lord's Supper is all about. And he does this by repeating what our Lord himself said at the Meals Institution. Our second point, the Lord's Supper reminds us of Jesus' death. Verses 23 to 25. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. I I can recall 15 years ago, sick as a dog with a high fever, I wrote a paper in Bible college about how the various 16th century reformers understood what Jesus meant when he said, this is my body. It's difficult for modern-day Protestants to understand the vehemence with which the nature of the Eucharist was contested during the time of the Reformation. The Lord's Supper is famous as the issue which produced the sharpest and most bitter disagreements between the Reformers, who on many other topics were basically of one mind. Rivers of ink flowed on these debates, Without getting into the weeds, because we'd be here all day, uh, Rome believed, and still does believe, uh, in what's called transubstantiation. Transubstantiation means conversion of substance. It's taught by Rome that when the words of consecration are pronounced by the priest, the substance of the elements, the bread and the wine, are converted into the substance of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And the body and blood are accompanied by the soul of Christ and by his divine nature. Thus, 
Both natures of Christ are present in the elements, his divine and human natures. Therefore, it's wholly appropriate to adore the Eucharist. The Mass, in fact, is a representing of the sacrifice of Christ to God on behalf of sinners necessary for salvation. All of the 16th century reformers were opposed to this teaching. And that's why, frankly, we do not participate in the Roman Catholic Mass. But was Christ in some way, either spiritually, physically, some mysterious way, really present in the elements of the Lord's Supper? After all, Jesus did say, this is my body. Some reformers said, yes, Christ is truly present, the real presence of Christ. And some said no. And there was much debate and much acrimony, much hostility and anger. Now, with respect to the Lord's Supper, the view that emphasizes remembering and thus the absence of Christ's real presence in the elements is often dismissed as the quote-unquote minimalist view. It's thought to be just, it's too cerebral. Uh, there's nothing of grace in it. We just sit around and remember. But there's a lot more to it than just that. Uh, as Carson reminds us, what we mustn't forget is the institution of the Lord's Supper was built off the Old Testament Passover rites. That's the key to everything. The Israelites gathered year by year, once a year, to remember on the appropriate date, the Passover. What did they do? They remembered. And by remembering, it was a kind of covenantal renewal. They remembered when the Lord had passed over the people of Israel in Egypt, who had put blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. The angel of destruction passed over the people. They were spared, while the firstborn of all those not protected by the blood were killed. Then the people of God exited from Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and became a fledgling nation in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And so year after year, year after year, they celebrated the Passover and they remembered. But in one sense... If you think about this, this is one of the most shocking paragraphs in the whole New Testament. Here's Jesus on the night of his betrayal, the day before he goes to the cross. And he tells his followers as he's about to die for them and suffer the most horrible shame and, and curse of his father and unimaginable agony that they may be forgiven. And he says, he tells them, don't forget me. Remember me. Do this in remembrance of me. But if we've been Christians for a while, and if we know ourselves at all, we know how easy it is to forget God's only remedy for sin. Do this in remembrance of me. And this does fit into a larger biblical structure. Passover remembered the old covenant. It was linked to the old covenant. Now, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. New City, this is a rite that remembers the inauguration of the new covenant in the same way that Passover remembered the inauguration of the old covenant. 
There's an inner canonical link going on. When Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, six centuries before Jesus, that the prophets look forward to the dawning of the new covenant, in this new covenant that he prophesies, there would be a final, a final forgiveness of sins for all the people of God and the pouring out of his spirit upon men and women so that we would all know him within that covenant from the least to the greatest. No longer would there be any mediating priests or mediating kings or mediating prophets. That's what that means. It would be a new covenant in which God stamps his law on people's hearts, not external tablets of stone. And it would all be secured, finally, by Jesus' death. So, within that biblical framework, put yourself in the disciples' place. At the Last Supper, in the upper room, Jesus takes the bread. And they, still, they, they don't really understand the cross, and they certainly don't understand the resurrection. And he breaks the bread, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. They're thinking, oh, okay, we'll remember. <laughs> and then he takes the cup. And he drinks it, and he says, do this in remembrance of me. See, but this inaugurates the new covenant. But the disciples don't really know what's going on. Then Jesus dies. And then three days later, he rises again. He talks with the disciples for weeks before he finally ascends to his father, and he leaves them behind. Then the Spirit is outpoured at Pentecost. Now the pieces come together. What Jesus was doing in the upper room was a symbol-laden act akin to the symbol-laden act of Passover. The disciples, they're not looking back to the bread and remembering bread. They look back to the cross. And remember that on the night that Jesus, the night before Jesus actually died, just as the Passover feast was celebrated before they actually got out of Egypt in anticipation, in an act that they would only fully understand later, Jesus, in the same way, instituted a rite which was to be remembered again and again and again. Do this in remembrance of me. It was to point to Jesus' broken body. It was to point to his shed blood. It was to force them in a simple rite, endlessly repeated, to remember. New City, Jesus died and we remember. Our sins are forgiven, and we remember. We're called to be children of the living God, and we remember. We are heirs of the new covenant, and we remember. Number four, the Lord's Supper ought to function evangelistically. It's a proclamation of Christ's death. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup... You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, there are some churches, some evangelical traditions, uh, who invite everybody who is not a member, any person who is not a Christian, to leave when that church partakes of the Lord's Supper. They say this observance is for Christians alone. Now, New City doesn't do that. We don't think that's biblical. Along with the early church, we see the Lord's Supper as an opportunity to proclaim Jesus to sinners. And that's just what we'll be doing in a few minutes. Partly what we'll be doing is we will be proclaiming Jesus and the good news of his sacrifice for sin 
to the world. And we want everybody who is present here today to hear that good news and to believe it. Our Bibles teach, the Bible teaches that Jesus gave his body to bear our sin. Jesus shed his blood. He gave up his life in a violent, substitutionary sacrifice that we might be forgiven. And now, as a body of blood-bought believers, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper to recall that sacrifice, to remember the death of our Lord, to recall the cost of the free gift of salvation, and to proclaim the sufficiency of that sin-atoning death to the whole world. And if you're a visitor with us today who is not a Christian, then we want you to know no member of New City Baptist Church is trusting in their good behavior or their good works to get them into God's good books. These elements, they do not symbolize moral effort. They don't symbolize religious sincerity. They don't symbolize religious zeal. It's bread and wine, which symbolizes the broken flesh and the shed blood of God incarnate. Sacrifice on a cross, once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. That is what we are celebrating this day with with sober joy. So if you're not a believer... If you're not a Christian, we don't want you to leave when we celebrate this table. We want you to stay. But we'd ask that you not eat the bread or drink the cup. When we come to the Lord's table in a moment, we ask that you would remain seated. Because by participating in this ordinance, you would be saying, I remember Jesus' death that paid for my sin. I proclaim his death to the world, that death that purchased me. When in fact, you don't believe that. Instead, we ask that you sit and that you watch as men and women just as sinful, just as undeserving of salvation as you are, celebrate this divine sacrifice made 2,000 years ago outside the gates of Jerusalem. We want the privilege, friend, of proclaiming to you the good news of Jesus' death today. Watch, friend, as the church of Jesus Christ remembers his death. Number five, the Lord's Supper is a temporary rite of anticipation until he comes. One day, a day known only by God the Father, People will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And Jesus will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds to the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. The dead in Christ will rise from their graves with glorified resurrection bodies. And those of us who are alive at his coming will be instantly transformed. And we will all together meet our Lord in the air. And continue on with him down to earth and reign with him forever in his consummated kingdom. And we will never celebrate the Lord's Supper again. This remembrance, this this proclamation to a dying world, will on that day forever cease. And Christians look forward to that day. We pray, Maranatha, come 
Lord Jesus. May this be the last Lord's Supper we ever take. A day when we'll no longer need to be reminded of the broken flesh and shed blood of our Lord. Instead, we will see the wounds that purchased our salvation with our own eyes. Wounds still emblazoned in Jesus' glorified, resurrected flesh. In fact, the whole world will see Jesus. As the John Senek Charles Wesley hymn says, Lo, he comes with clouds descending, once for our salvation slain. Thousand, thousand saints attending, swell the triumph of his train. Alleluia, alleluia, Christ the Lord returns to reign. Every eye shall now behold him, robed in dreadful majesty. Those who set at naught and sold him, pierced and nailed him to the tree, deeply wailing, deeply wailing, shall the true Messiah see. Those dear tokens of his passion, still his dazzling body bears, cause of endless exaltation to his ransomed worshipers. With what rapture, with what rapture, gaze we on those glorious scars. Now redemption, long expected, see in solemn pomp appear. All his saints by man rejected, now shall meet him in the air. Hallelujah, hallelujah, see the Son of God appear. Yea, amen, let all adore thee, high on thine eternal throne. Savior, take the power and glory, claim the kingdom for thine own. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Thou shalt reign, and thou alone. Number six, the Lord's Supper provides an opportunity for self-examination. The Apostle Paul writes in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Now it's important that we recognize Paul says in an unworthy manner. When he says that, he is describing the person's approach. He's not describing the person him or herself. It's not an adjective describing that person, someone who is unworthy. It doesn't say that because we're all unworthy. It says, therefore, whoever eats, and eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Okay, well, what is an unworthy manner? Well, we, we just looked at this the other week, didn't we? Let me ask again. Christian, are you nurturing all kinds of sin? Is your profession of faith made up of deceit and lies? If so and you plan on participating in this ordinance today, then you would be approaching the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. If deep down you're nurturing resentment and sin and arrogance and prayerlessness and lust and hatred and nurtured gossip, and you say, I remember, you will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 27b. And verse 27b has been primarily understood in three ways. Number one, you are sitting against the body and blood of the Lord that are constituted by these elements. 
I don't think that's what the text is saying at all. I don't believe that these elements are to be viewed as literally, literally the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. Second option, you are sitting against the body of Christ, that is the church. I don't believe that's correct either. But in the context of the earlier part of the chapter, uh, where the social elites have been sitting against each other in the church, the body of Christ, in the way that they've been having their private suppers, right? And so the, their, their beluga caviar feasts of fellowship. Uh, those private feasts actually relegated to some marginal, peripheral part of the church, all those who were too poor to come early. Nor did those rich people share their food. So in that sense, they were sitting against the body of Christ. So it's argued. Now, there's a lot to commend that. It, it just about works, except for one thing. Look at verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Sometimes in the New Testament, the church is called the body of the Lord. But the church is never called the body and blood of the Lord. So I think we're better off with option three. You are sitting against the real body and blood of the Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus who hung on the cross. The right explanation is often just the simplest explanation. If you come to this table today when you're supposed to remember and you say, I remember the body and blood of the Lord, when deep down inside you're nurturing all sorts of sin, then you're sitting against the body and blood of the Lord. You're sitting against the cross. You're sitting against Jesus' sacrifice. You say you remember, yet you spit in our Lord's face by nurturing your sin. That's what's going on here in this verse. Verse 28. Anyone, everyone, ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, that is, recognizing the body of the Lord that is being remembered by this rite, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. In other words, this rite, this ordinance, is meant to be a call to self-examination, brothers and sisters, and repentance. It's serious business. It's a call to self-examination and repentance. Now, don't misunderstand that. Paul is not suggesting that this means we're to approach the table in a state of sinless perfection. That's impossible. The question is the manner of our approach. The manner of our approach must be one of self-examination and confession of sin. Otherwise the right itself becomes not only a farce, but a blasphemous farce. We're claiming to remember that by which we were saved, while, in fact, deep in our lives, we prefer sin. It's the worst, worst kind of hypocrisy. Christians sometimes approach the Lord as if this table were a bit of magic to sort of bless us throughout the week. No. This is a time for self-examination. It's a time for repentance. But before we move to the last point, just a word of caution to balance out point number six. This comes from Andy Nacelli, wise words. Churches who focus on introspection 
may create a super solemn funeral atmosphere that makes people dread observing the Lord's Supper rather than eagerly look forward to it. Sin permeates us so deeply that it's impossible even to be aware of all of our sin, let alone confess each one. Suggesting that we not observe the Lord's Supper if we have any quote-unquote unconfessed sin in our lives turns the Lord's table from happy to sad. And you often hear churches, if you have unconfessed sin, don't come. The thing is, you don't know all your sin. There's all kinds of sin that you have not yet confessed. You don't even aware of it. The Lord's Supper should be a happy occasion that celebrates the gospel. The, the Lord's Supper is actually it's a victory lap, announcing the triumph of Christ over the powers of sin and death and Satan. So to balance this out, there are, three, there are at least three reasons to discourage someone from celebrating the Lord's table. Three, that person is not a Christian. And I would go beyond just saying, I would discourage you from taking it. I would say, do not take it. Do not. It would be a lie. I remember when you don't believe. So an unbeliever does not take the Lord's Supper. Secondly, not a baptized member of a gospel-believing church, if that's you. I believe you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper. There's an order that these ordinances occur. And three, if you're unrepentantly persisting in your sin, don't take the Lord's Supper, if you're a member here or not. The fact is, seven, the Lord's Supper can be dangerous. Verse 30, that is why, that is because some have not examined themselves, that is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. That means death. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, we are, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. We see in the case of a man like Job that it's not always possible to draw a direct line of relationship between illness and sin. Job was a righteous man. God told Satan that there is no one in all the world like him. He was righteous, and yet he suffered terribly, terribly. Or consider the man who was born blind in John chapter 9. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Obviously, they see a direct correlation between illness and sin. Rabbi, who sinned, this man in the womb or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Nevertheless, in the New Testament, it informs us that some illnesses are, in fact, the product of sin there can be a relationship between sin and illness. Uh, do you remember what Jesus says to the, the paralyzed man in John 5.14 after he heals him? See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. Or think of Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. They died as a result of their sin. They lied to the Holy Spirit. And in regard to the Lord's Supper, Paul writes, This is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. 
So Paul holds here that at least some of the ailments in the congregation at Corinth are bound up with their nurtured sin while still approaching the Lord's table. Brothers and sisters, we serve a holy, holy, holy God. It's just often we just don't believe it. And yet the worst thing that can happen to us is that God our Father does not discipline us at all. Look at verse 32. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. When God judges a Christian, his judgment is different from how he judges a non-Christian. And it's also different from how pagans think their gods vindictively and just very arbitrarily punish people. Uh, God condemns non-Christians, but he disciplines Christians. And the goals of punishment and discipline differ. Punishment upholds justice. Discipline transforms character. Parents, remember that. We looked at this in Hebrews chapter 12 a little while ago. Punishment upholds justice, whereas discipline transforms character. The goals are different. But we read here that one purpose of God's discipline is so that Christians will not experience final condemnation. In other words, divine discipline is a God-ordained means for Christians to persevere in the faith. It's a good thing to face some of the judgment of God. God helped the church where he just lets them go on their own way, where there is no judgment anywhere, no discipline, no judgment, nothing, no sanctions. Do what you want. Pretty soon you have a dead church. They're, they're, they're littered all over this city. That means then that the Lord's table is a place that can be dangerous because we serve one who says, Isaiah sixty six twelve. These are the ones I look on with favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. The flip side of all this, of course, lest we end up with just fear, is that in the, this, is a, this is a place for remembering, brothers and sisters, the boldness, remembering with boldness the, the access we have coming into God's throne room. Is all through Christ. Christ did die. And we remember. Our sins are forgiven. And we remember. We're called to be children of the living God. We remember. We are heirs of the new covenant. And we remember. Amen.